Trinity Saints is a church in inner-city London. In 1997, Rose Hudson Wilkin became its vicar. You may have heard the story of me climbing on my church roof to protest. Rose was born and raised in Jamaica. She came to England when she was 18 to train as an evangelist, and she became a priest in the Church of England 15 years later. When she joined the church in Hackney, she inherited a building in disrepair. Specifically, there was a problem with the roof. It kept on leaking, and she wanted the local authorities to fix it. Rose wanted to make a case for her congregation, her community, and the building that housed them. So she climbed to the church's roof and stayed there for 24 hours. I was saying, look, you know, you're spending money putting up new housing in the community and moving some people, bringing in others. But the reality is uh, when people are experiencing difficulties, it is the church that they come to. Think of the wider community as home and think of the added value that the church brings to those communities as, as well. News articles and podcasts still tell the story of that protest today. I'm Damien Bradfield and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it and how to use it for good. Rose Hudson Wilkin is now Bishop Rose of Dover, the first black woman to be a bishop in the Church of England. Before that, in 2010, she became the first female chaplain to the Speaker at the House of Commons. And before that, she was appointed as a chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen. It's important to call out these firsts as a reminder of just how recently Rose has been breaking barriers. And not only that she's earned positions of power, but what she's done with her influence from the very beginning. Bishop Rose was an early advocate for women becoming priests. She's been consistent in calling out sexism and racism, both personal and structural, literally standing up for what's right. Bishop Rose, welcome. Thank you very much for making the time. It's a delight to be with you. Um, Where in the world are you? I am in Canterbury, which is in Kent. So do you know that I went to school in Canterbury? So I went to Kent College in Canterbury and spent many Christmases in Canterbury Cathedral. Wonderful. I used to be in the choir. I have to say it was a very short stint. That's not because your voice broke, is it? (laughs) Well, I wasn't a very good singer. I think that's the most important thing. (laughs) Okay. Can I just dive into Jamaica? You grew up there. I've never mm. been there. I have an image of Jamaica. Oh, you must. You must. Yes. It, uh, it looks beautiful and sunny and everyone is happy. Cool uh, Jamaica. Exactly. Very cool. <laughs> what was it that drew you towards the ministry? Why was it that you decided of all things that that would be your calling or that would be your, your path? Or did you not know that? Well, I did know that. Oh, gosh, I knew that. I refer to myself as a cradle Anglican. So I was baptized before I was four months old. And uh, we grew up in the church. As most people? Or were you, were you unique in that? Oh, as most people, like most people, yeah. Jamaica has one of the highest uh, number of churches per capita than any other country in the world. We have denominations. We make them up as we go along. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I grew up within the Anglican Church, uh, the Church of England in Jamaica. By the time I could read, I was reading in church. So, you know, five, six, seven, 
I was on rotors to, to be reading in church, to lead intercessions. When I was 14, I preached my first sermon. And I can still remember climbing up the steps of this you know, huge pulpit to deliver my sermon. And I still remember the passage of scripture that I preach from, which was Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? So I have felt a sense of calling from an early age. And uh, I recall my discussion with the bishop about ministry and why we don't have women in ministry as well, and being told, we're Anglicans, we don't do that. <laughs> and so you sort of nurture that calling in your heart. And and my thing with God was, I believe you have called me, so I'm, I'm going to be faithful. Why did you have that belief? You know, it started with a dream that I had one night. I was in early teens. And in the dream, it was as though the Spirit of God had appeared to me and told me something. And so in the dream, I started thanking God for the revelation. And I was saying, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. It woke me up and woke others up in the house. And that was disturbing. That was disturbing. In order to get back to sleep again, I picked up the Bible and it fell open at Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we have the words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news, etc., etc. And it comforted me and I went back to sleep. The next morning, I was using something like a daily word where you have a little passage of scripture and a bit of an explanation and a prayer. And I reached for it and went to the day that was allocated and blow me down. It was the passage from Isaiah, which Jesus was reading in the Luke 4, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And that was a, that was a wow moment. I never forgot it. It stayed with me. It was right there in front of me all the time. And I think for me, that was the moment that said, you are being called for ministry. And actually, every time I read the Bible, you know, for various things, you know, it would be about somebody's calling. But of course, I belonged to a church that said, you're a woman, you're a woman, you can't do that. You know, so holding those two in tension was challenging. But I believed in my heart that God called me. And that's always greater than the church, just rules and regulation. Did your family support you in your choice? Yes, I guess they did. When I was 18, I came to the UK to be trained as a church army evangelist because I know the church army had women. And, and then some years after that, the Church of England began ordaining women as deacons. And when I offered, again, I was told by then I was married with a child and I was told, you know, ought I not to be at home looking after my husband and my daughter? And I remembered saying, well, actually, my husband is perfectly capable of looking after himself. And had I not thought about how I would manage with my daughter, then I would not have gone down this road. Right. It took a while to convince the English church, as it were, the Church of England, that I was being called. But here I am. For a lot of people, you've become quite a role model. I, I don't set myself up as a role model. But I know that I overextend myself. And by that, I mean, 
If I get invited to go to a school, sometimes I change things in my diary so that I can get to a school. And the reason for that is I was lucky to have been brought up in Montego Bay, Jamaica, because growing up there, I saw images of myself in all walks of life. So I grew up knowing that I could become whatever I wanted to be. Whereas for black children growing up in this country, they don't always see the positive images of themselves. So I overextend and go as many places as possible throughout the country so that children can see images of themselves in a positive way. And also for white children too, it is important for them to see black images that, that are positive and not as the media would have them see. I want to take a quick spin through the other roles you've had because I would imagine they're very different to the current role that you have and also the context is very different. When did you become a chaplain for the Queen? I became one of Her Majesty's chaplains in 2007. So how many, how many does she have? She can have a maximum of 30-something. I think it's 33 or 35 chaplains. Wow. That began when the church broke away from, from Rome in those early years. And it was important for Her Majesty to have representatives around the country that's been a real pleasure and an honor to be one of her chaplains. And in the year of her celebrations, one of her big celebrations, I, I remember thinking, wow, how amazing. And, and I'm thinking, but Rose, as a church, you pray for her, not just once a day, several times. Oh, yeah. You know, so of course God is answering your prayers. <laughs> <laughs> And was there a particular moment in your career where you felt that you were needed more than a particular time or where you felt that there was a sense of urgency that needed to be addressed? I suspect my time in Hackney. Okay. I worked in Hackney for 16 and a half years. And the last four years of that was uh, overlapped with Parliament. My chaplaincy roles in Parliament began while I was in Hackney. Hackney was deeply special because in Hackney is a very diverse community and uh, you are working at the cold front with people from all different backgrounds and traditions and cultures. And there is something quite vibrant and exciting about this and probably, you know, a place where I hope I made a great impact. Can you remember a particular occasion where you, where you might have done? You know, we had several sad, sad situations there in terms of young people dying, young people being murdered, uh, knife crimes or gun crimes, etc. Being there with the families mourning with them, challenging the status quo. Because Hackney today, I mean, just for our audience, is a very different place to when, when you were working there. I think a lot of our audience would look at Hackney today and find it quite an aspirational place to live. Oh, it's very gentrified. Sure. But actually some of the same people are still there. So sometimes we can try to socially engineer uh, the environment. As a matter of fact, when I went there and they were 
doing some of the building of those new communities. And you may have heard the story of me climbing on my church roof to protest. Let's hear that. <laughs> I did. And, and what I was really doing, I was saying, look, you know, you're spending money putting up new housing in the community and moving some people, bringing in others. But the reality is uh, when people are experiencing difficulties, it is the church that they come to. You know, it is the clergy who live in those communities and who are doing their darndest best to meet some of the needs uh, in those communities. So I was saying, please, you know, don't just think about that building as home. Think of the wider community as home and think of the added value that the church brings to those communities as as well. Right. You know, people behave as if this whole sort of Black Lives Matter thing is a new thing. It's not a new thing. And one of my things that I said back then, if we really mean that Black Life matters, then we too in the Black community must also live in a way that says it matters towards each other. And it cannot just be it matters when the police kills someone who is Black, but when we in the community are having Black-on-Black killings, then we too must also be making the statement, and, and not just making the statement, but challenging ourselves within the community about our life's matter, you know, and, and what are we doing by that? So real challenging time. And, you know, those questions are, are still pertinent. How do we live together in a way that says all life matters? So, for example, when I took part in the, the Black Lives Matter protest here in Canterbury, I had a number of letters and emails from people really angry that I took part in it and echoing to me, surely all life matters. And, you know, they really missed the boat because a few months afterwards, you know, we were hearing stories of people coming over on boats to this country, some losing their lives. And, 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 and people were just simply the same people who were writing into me to say all life matters were, were the same people speaking in a way that showed a lack of compassion for those who were fleeing war or fleeing poverty, basically saying, we don't want them in our country. And, and it was my time to say to them, ah, you told me that all life matters. Did you not mean those people? And I imagine that must be quite interesting where you live. But again, for those people that don't know the geography, Dover is really on the southeast coastline of, of the UK. And I imagine local residents would feel they're at the forefront of a lot of the immigration that's happening to the UK with um, immigrants coming through France and boats trying to get into the UK. And I know some of that attitude towards race and immigration, which I can imagine seeps through very much into what you're doing. I try to live according to the tenets of my faith. And that's what I preach to. So what I live is what I preach. In terms of what I preach, my faith tells me about a God who is the one God. It tells me about a God who created humanity. So we have one human race, although we have tried to, to separate it and we talk about people being of different races, we're not. Under the paintwork, we're exactly the same thing. 
And so I tried to live belonging to this one human race. And therefore, it means that I see people on different continents as my brothers or my sisters. And that means when I see a disaster happening somewhere, when I see a father weeping because uh, a bomb has exploded and completely knocked out their building and their children have died, I weep with them because that's another part of my family. When I see people in, what do we call it now, refugee camps, which are really not the place for children to be growing up. When I see children running around barefooted, snow is falling, they have no coats, I weep. The person who is fleeing war, the person who is fleeing poverty, because sometimes that's what we say, oh, they're not real refugees, they're economic migrants. But listen, Britain The British were economic migrants when they went to America, when they went to Africa, when they went to the the Caribbean, when they went to Asia, Australia, etc. They were going to make a better life for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what they were doing. They weren't fleeing bombs, etc. So this is God's world. And people will always move in order to improve their lives and the lives of their family. The world belongs to God. It's just us humans who have partitioned it off and said, this is mine. You keep out there, you know. But this is all one world. And so I have to preach that and I have to live that. And and I have to challenge when I hear whether it is being said within the church or beyond the church. I have to challenge those views that tells a different story that says those people are not made in God's image and that we're not brothers and sisters. What do you think is the most rewarding part of your work? The face-to-face interactions that I do with people, with the children, with young people. I am a great believer that uh, our lives are intertwined together. There's a wonderful South African social language, uh, Ubuntu, Ubuntu. I am because we are, or I am because you are. Our sense of presence, our sense of who we are is wrapped up with our relationship with other people. And it is through those relationships that we are affirmed. Certainly for me, it is important that each day I am in contact with humans in my ministry. And also we have a great strap line here in the Diocese of Canterbury, which is changed lives, changing lives. When we were children, our folks used to say to us, action speaks louder than words. So it is important to me that people don't just know because I wear a dog collar that she is a Christian or that she's a disciple of Christ, a follower of the Christian faith. But by the way I live, the actions that I'm involved with, with people, must also express my faith so that at the end of the day, no one says, 
I can't hear what you're saying because of what you're doing. They both must synchronize. You say face-to-face contact is so important. Um, that obviously was lacking for quite some time. Zoom is not a replacement. So how did, how did you manage to make it work? Were you able to find another way of doing the work that you do or getting the enjoyment that you previously had? The last year has been extremely challenging. So three and a half months after I started, we went into lockdown. So, of course, we couldn't be with people and travel around freely in the diocese. I had a wise old nun who once said to me, when I was talking about life in Jamaica and how we used to do things, she said, Rose, this is your reality, so deal with it. And so I have carried those words. I have a painting of her in my office, so I see her every day and have a little smile with her because I remember those are the words each time I look at the painting. So I had to deal with my reality. And it was a reality with life going digital. And so we have to make that work to begin to communicate. And it's difficult to communicate warmth and love. Uh, You know, you can't read uh, someone else's body language, uh, as it were, when you are doing things over the screen in little square boxes. And and actually the relief... uh, when we first met up again beyond the boxes to see people for real, the temptation to want to hug and to hold people. (laughs) But we're waiting, we're holding, we're holding back. How prepared was the church for COVID? I don't mean from a sickness point of view or prevention, I mean from a digital perspective. Um, Was it a challenge for the church to get up to speed? Oh gosh, it was a huge challenge. I mean, I've never even heard of Zoom (laughs) before. Um, lockdown. But you know what? I am so proud. We rose to the occasion. Mm-hmm. People learned fast. They live streamed. They managed to put services together. They managed to edit things and you know preach sermons. Um, the National Church of England created a service that people could dial in on their phones and listen to that as well. So I, you know, I, I'm very proud of our church, not only in the diocese, but nationally in terms of what we were able to do. How do you feel about today? Because social media, technology, um, so much of the language of community and social, of social media is very similar to the church. We talk about followers, we talk about community. When you've seen social media growing and you've seen the impact of social media and unfortunately the cost of social media, the diminished trust, the increase in the amount of fake news. How do you see that reflecting on the church? And do you feel that there's an increased demand in the church um, as a response to the decrease in trust online? You know, I think all of us have a responsibility with the mediums. It's, you know, it's like someone who says, guns don't kill, it's people that kill, you know. I mean, I I think it's a tragedy, the gun explosions in America. These mediums can be used for good. But sadly, human beings, you know, we err on the wrong side. And we hide behind anonymity. Sometimes we can call ourselves a different name, 
and uh, abuse others online. Do we take that away because it is being used badly? I think we have to legislate. And then people throw their arms up in despair and says, oh, but what about free speech? But we have to remember it is beholden to us to act responsibly. And free speech is not about abusing others. When we were children, they used to say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words cannot. Actually, words damage. We have seen people end their lives because of the abuse that they have been given or that they've been trolled, etc. So we have to be responsible. And it saddens me that we're not always responsible in our use of social media. I would imagine you have a position of influence and authority. And certainly in the UK, I would think after Harry and, and Meghan's wedding, you must have been much more recognized and, and much more visible than ever. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that was a moment, wasn't it? That was quite a, a, a moment for British history. Yes, it, it, was, it was amazing being part of that of that history, very special, and uh, a moment to, to treasure. If there was one thing that you could take away from your work or experience that you've had, something that others um, you know, could learn from, what would it be? I wonder whether the one thing has to be that wonderful summary of the law that Jesus gave when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It has to be the fact that we are humans together. We are God's children, God's creation all together. And so we have a responsibility to care for one another and to care for the creation, you know, that which we've been given. We have been entrusted with the gift of love, the gift of life, and we should never, ever take it or take each other, or take our environment for granted. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Bishop Rose for sharing your bright vision for a kinder society. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing, always punctual Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush, our WeTransfer producer is Linda Mertens. A massive thank you as always to Center Sound in Amsterdam. And you can find this podcast anywhere on the entire internet if you use Google search. If you enjoy the show, please follow us, rate us and leave us a review. And if there's someone you really think we should interview, please tweet me at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. Until next time. 